Welcome back to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here live in the studio with Paul, and we are back recording, talking about G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. I feel like we're back in the studio, back recording, back for our for a new album. <laughs> should, we, should we start beatboxing? You can beatbox. Ready? Yeah, go for it. Very impressive. Very impressive. I thought there you were going to start dropping some bars. No, I'm worried what I would say and uh, <laughs> really get canceled. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth rappeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, you, you're, uh, you're your own favorite comedian. I am. I cracked myself yeah, up. That was yeah, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway. we got some serious business uh, to get to. Very serious business. We're talking about chapter five, the flag of the world. And mm. so far we've been reading Chesterton and, and just for background, G.K. Chesterton is a Roman Catholic essayist, writer, political kind of pundit. Wasn't always Catholic. Wasn't always Catholic. In fact, I think he was Anglican when he wrote this. I think so. And, uh, but he is and he writing. he went to the dark side. He went to the dark side. He is writing against some of the skepticism of modernity that he's encountering in his day. And he's trying to really flip the script a little bit. And he's kind of teaching us how to be cynical about the cynical people, mm. I think. And uh, we talked about in the last episode, the ethics of Elfland, talking about how <clears throat> myths and fairy tales encode values passed down through tradition, how tradition is a way that democracy works. When you think about democracy, Tradition in democracy allows the ages of the past, our, our forefathers, to have a vote, mm -hmm. have a say, which is mm -hmm. important if you want a stable society and you want to cultivate virtue in your people. And that myths and fairy tales show us this, and they help encode these traditions for us, and uh, you know, pass on, pass it on through the generations, and lift our through our imaginations, lift us up to understand virtue and, and these types of things. That's a very loose summary. You guys should just read the book or listen to the last episode. We can't recap it every single time. But <laughs> that takes us to the flag of the world. This was a challenging chapter to, uh, to read and to, to understand. I mean, he... This is uh, our 400th take this is our recording 400th take. this episode. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the way that he argues is he talks <clears throat> about Christianity as sort of a third way between pessimism and optimism, mm -hmm. potentially a third way between... I guess you could call liberalism and conservatism. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in honor of Tim Keller, we're going we're talking a about third, the third way. way right? Yeah. And um, so he's talking about Christianity providing an alternate to being an optimist or a pessimist. Mm -hmm. And also how we should live in a way in which we love things enough to want them to change. Mm -hmm. And he kind of sees love, true love, as a way of not being rose-colored glasses optimistic, mm -hmm. but also not being so dour and pessimistic that you have no... You know, but both of them lead to inactivity. One mm -hmm. says, there's no need to change. The other says, everything must change, but they can't, so there's no point. Yeah. And so he kind of pokes that. But he's really trying to present Christianity as sort of the way to resolve the tension that we all feel when we kind of ping-pong between optimism and pessimism when it comes to the world, when mm -hmm. it comes to human nature, when it comes to the country or something like that. Yeah. Um, so he, he kind of touches on that, but what, what's, when, when you hear the flag of the world, what, what do you think was the, why do you think he titles it the flag of the world? I mean, it's a very interesting 
chapter yeah. title. I think he's using the concept of patriotism or using the concept or the idea of being tied to land or being tied to a country as a metaphor for understanding our relationship to reality. Then in the same way you don't pick your place of birth, you don't pick that you exist. You're just like, you find yourself in this universe and you have to take uh, an attitude or a posture towards the world. You can either be very pessimistic or you can be optimistic. Um, and both of those are opposite ways that lead to inactivity, like you said. Um, but the flag of the world is the sort of just like, we're humans, we're part of this reality, and now we have to decide, do I strive for improvement? Do I try to bring about progress? Or do I just sit on my haunches and say, well, the world sucks and it's going to hell in a handbasket? Or do I like just put on sort of naive rose-colored glasses and see the world in really cheery sort of light? But both of those will equally lead to a life of non-action, right? So, so to truly love reality, is to see reality as it is with its good and its bad, but love makes things better, right? So, so he accuses the optimist and the pessimist of both being, they, they lead to the same error, which is the error of inactivity, that you can't truly love something if you're totally for it and you see no flaws with it, or if you're just totally pessimistic and you don't think anything about it is worth fighting for at all. So he writes in the very beginning, uh, the optimist, thought this world as good as it could be, while the pessimist thought it as bad as it could be. And he later comes to say, I came to the conclusion that the optimist thought everything good except the pessimist, and that the pessimist thought everything bad except himself. Yeah. And he's basically saying that the optimist is, they're both not seeing reality, or rather maybe they're only seeing half of reality and it's mm -hmm. coloring the whole. The optimist is saying everything's <clears throat> fine, yep. except the pessimist. The pessimist is annoying. But I think what he's doing is he, he's showing that they both have blind spots, right? Um, the optimist thinks everything's fine, but he doesn't really think everything's fine right. because the pessimist is around there and he doesn't like him. Yeah. So not everything's fine. And the pessimist thinks everything is terrible, but he doesn't really think everything's terrible because mm. he doesn't think he himself is terrible. Right. He thinks everyone else's <laughs> judgment is terrible except for his, mm -hmm. right? He's giving himself special preference. Yeah. So he's showing that both of these are not being, they're, they're not, their positions in themselves aren't capturing the whole picture. So they're inconsistent. They're inconsistent. Yeah. Then he says the best way is to live with love and loyalty. Mm -hmm. And he has interesting ways of describing <clears throat> that. And you mentioned one with patriotism, mm -hmm. right? Um, you're born into a country, yeah, right? And you don't ask for it. You don't ask for the culture you're born to. You don't ask for the family you're born to, all these types of things. And yet there's this sort of immediate tie to this Identity. I mean, I think what's interesting, I think, maybe I'll sum it up this way, mm -hmm. is that today we don't think about our identity as something that's given to us. We think about it as something that we construct on our own. You know, Carl Truman talks about this in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Mm -hmm. When really, if you think about like everything about you is sort of given to you, your name is given to you by you didn't choose it, your body, your genetics, the time and place you grew up in, all these things are given to you. Yeah. And so there's an intention behind that. And so you are intentionally the way you are, and that's due to all these factors that you can't control. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, you've got to love that. Loving it doesn't mean you don't recognize the flaws. You think about a family where it's like, everything's fine. You know, there's dysfunction. Well, the liberal revolutionary goes, dismantle the family. We mm -hmm. don't need families. It's corrupt to the core. Mm -hmm. Maybe the overly traditional conservative goes, nothing's wrong with the family. 
don't rock the boat. Yeah. And he's saying, no, if you truly love the family, you could go, this is my family. I love them. And because I love them, I want them to be better than they are. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm, because I love them, I'm also not going to disown them. Right. I'm going to commit. I'm not going to just try to disavow myself. Yeah. And he uses the example of, um, he says, the point is not that this world is too sad to love or too glad not to love. The point is that when you do love a thing, it's gladness is a reason for loving it. And it's sadness, a reason for loving it more. And then he mentions how men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Yeah. In other words, people didn't find Rome and go, she's beautiful. We're going to commit. They were like, we are Romans. We love her in her state and we're going to make her better. Right. Yeah. Which, which kind of, and some people have pointed this out. It's a different mindset from traditional conservatism or liberalism about your role to the state. So the the conservative says, I love my state because of what it was. Mm-hmm. And the lib so the, the the conservative is the optimist, the person who sees the state as really good and so nothing needs to change. But the liberal is the one who thinks everything is terrible and wants to go beyond the state to something else. But they don't really have hope that the state can change. And so what what Chesterton's really saying is, if you truly love your country, it's not going to be because of what you see in the past or what you look forward to in the future, but you just you just sort of commit yourself to your country. Like it has to be for almost no reason at all. And once you start loving the thing, then it becomes lovable. And so it, it grows into your love for it. So, so Rome became great because people loved and invested in it. It's not like Rome was an idea. It became an idea because people loved the place that they were. It's sort of abstract and it's a little bit hand wavy, but I think that there's there's something in that thought. I think about how when people say like, you can't talk about my brother that way or my sister that way. Mm-hmm. It's like, but I can. And like, <laughs> what's the logic behind that? It's like, well, one, we have this familial tie to which he knows my ultimate loyalty is, is to him or she knows my ultimate loyalty is to her. Yeah. And that allows me the margin to say some hard things or to, you know, because there's a commitment there. And it's one that you didn't pick. It's one that you, you just found pick. yourself right. in this right. family unit. Right. right. There's this, you're bound together and that's what gives you more liberty to say some things. Yeah. And I think that's true of, you know, just to a certain extent, friendships, although those are more voluntary. Right. Um, but your, then he, your children, your, yeah. your parents, your siblings. Yeah. And he talks about Pim, Pimlico, 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 Pimlico yeah. in, uh, it's an ugly neighborhood in London. Is it really? Have you been there? I'm not, I don't think I've been there, but he, the way he describes it is like, it's just sort of like, meh, like, I don't well, know what the equivalent like. Well, you want to read his quote on Pimlico? Yeah. Let me pull it up here. Because he says something about. Yeah. Uh, so let us suppose we are confronted with a desperate thing, say Pimlico. <laughs> that's hilarious. Like, what would he say here? It'd be like, like Detroit. You know, <laughs> like, let's that's so messed up. <laughs> but yeah, that's fair. Yeah, somewhere that's not like nobody says I'm moving to Detroit, like for fun. <laughs> this is terrible. We're going to get canceled. But anyway, Pimlico, if we think what is really best for Pimlico, we shall find the thread of thought leads to the throne or to the mystic and the arbitrary. It is not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico. In that case, he will merely cut his throat, <laughs> geez, or move to Chelsea, which is a nice neighborhood. 
Nor certainly is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. The only way out of it seems to be for somebody to love Pimlico, to love it with a transcendental tie and without any earthly reason. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise into ivory towers and golden pinnacles. Pimlico would attire herself as a woman does when she is loved. Then he later says Pimlico in a year or two might be fairer than Florence. So love... That's not based on any reason. Just loving a thing has the power to transform. So if you just loved Pimlico because you said Pimlico was good, then Pimlico doesn't change. But if you take this posture that Pimlico is terrible and awful, then it also doesn't change. But you just have to take this approach where you're just like, I'm in Pimlico, it's my place, I love it for what it is, and that loving is what transforms. It's lovable because it's loved, it's not loved because it's lovable. And that has like broader um, implications for other things like marriage and friendships and relationships outside of that. But I think this principle is a little bit counterintuitive, but I think it's true. I, this reminds me of something Luther, Martin Luther talked about where he was saying that the love of God is different in that man's love is drawn out of him by the loveliness of the object. So it's conditioned person. Yeah. 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 So you see someone beautiful, mm -hmm. see a you know, woman's beautiful and she draws love out of you. Mm -hmm. But he says, that's not how God's love works. God's love loves that, which is unlovable. Or as yeah. the apostle Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. Mm -hmm. You know, while we're yet sinners, he, Christ died for us. And so he, but his love is transformative. Yeah, he chooses to love thing. sinners. And then his love actually is what turns them into creatures of, mm -hmm. of glory. I, I yeah. think about it in, um, C.S. Lewis in uh, in the Great Divorce, mm -hmm. the dude with the little like dragon or serpent on yeah. his shoulder, it's yeah. like a little, and it gets like burnt off him, and he's screaming. And then once that's removed, he becomes this glorious creature. Yeah. And I think about what a picture of sanctification, mm. and how we change. But but there's something to that where that's woven into us too, where he's almost saying like you can maybe approximate God's love by when you love and you commit to love that that actually has a beautifying effect. Just that's, mm -hmm. I think that's his point with Rome. Like yeah. he's saying they loved Rome. They, they, they saw what Rome could be mm -hmm. and they loved that into existence, mm -hmm. right? And you only get that if the thing that ties you to loving Rome can't be the beauty of Rome because it doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. It has to be something greater. And I think he talks about that where he basically says that um, we, it's something about like, we've got to love, um, have a love that, that that's trans, transcendent. He says, the only way out of it seems to be somebody to love Pimlico, to love it with a transcendental tie and without any earthly reason. Yeah. Um, I think what he's talking about is some sense of grace mm. of, you know, and, and again, I think the national kind of metaphor is helpful because it's like, you were, you don't pick it. You don't pick it. Yeah. Right. And you're called to, love it mm -hmm. to have a kind of a a sense of uh of place maybe that's hard for us today because we're so um yeah we're so consumeristic and, and consumeristic, oh yeah yeah like this is de like the more i think about it the more it does remind me of the concept of unconditional election like th there's an unconditional oh, oh chesterton would hate you for saying that <laughs> well but he he seems to be defending something like it's arbitrary is, is what he's saying. Like your where you end up is kind of arbitrary, but you're called to love that thing, not because of its loveliness, but just because you like, it's just 
it's election almost like you're just there and you find yourself in this location or you find yourself with these kids, you find yourself with these siblings, parents, whatever. You didn't choose these people. They were put there for you and you love them and make them lovable because of your love, not having your love conditioned by their loveliness. It's unconditional and it's election yeah. <laughs> because it's where you're placed arbitrarily almost without your consent or will. <clears throat> it's not your choice and it's unconditional and sort of like an interesting metaphor for unconditional election. Ooh. I hadn't even thought of that until we spelled it out like that. And it, it pushes back against the consumeristic mindset where we think that we we're supposed to choose the objects of our love, but Chesterton is saying, no, there's something deeply ingrained in human nature, even in the fiber of the universe, that place land family are things you are just your existence is inextricably tied to. And there's an obligation, a special obligation there that you don't decide on. Like there are things that you voluntarily into friendship, marriage, things like that. Um, but even then there's an element of like, once you enter into a marriage, it's unconditional, right? But these kinds of relationships go even further because you don't get to choose them. Your entire identity is conditioned on being in those relationships. You wouldn't exist as an American if you weren't born in America. Like you wouldn't be Brian without the concept of Americanness tied into who you are. And that's just, it's a fascinating concept. He says something about uh, the cosmic anti-patriot anti uh, is the pessimist. And then he talks about your candid friends, which we all have those candid friends. Oh, you know, yeah. Just to be candid, <clears throat> we do, right? They, they tell it like it is, you know, they say it like it is, no filter, whatever. Your philosopher friends. That's right. And he says that, um, I venture to say that what is bad in the candid friend, the pessimist, is simply that he is not candid. He is keeping something back, his own gloomy pleasure in saying unpleasant things. He has a secret desire to hurt, not merely to help. So I imagine, <clears throat> he says this is the anti-patriot. And <clears throat> what they're saying is they always see the problems and everything, but they also have no attachment. They have no attachment to the country. They have no vested interest to see things get better. They just mm -hmm. like to spout out about their negative opinions. Mm -hmm. I just think that's a, a, a hilarious quote. Yeah. Probably very true. It and is. He's, he's like, the, you know, the, the person who tells it like it is will tell you everything except for this one truth that they keep hidden, <laughs> that they love telling how, like, they love making people miserable. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing that they hold back, right? That's, that's basically my job description. Yeah. And make people miserable by pointing out things that people don't want pointed out. That's right. Now, I don't know exactly how that connects in with this. I mean, it's, it's another dig at the, uh, at, at the people at the, who are excusing themselves from action due to cynicism, hmm. you know, because a cyn cynicism is this sort of sense that you are pure, Yeah. you know, and you're looking out at this impure world and you just can't believe it, you know, and you see through it all. Um, it's it's a constant looking down. So the world sucks except for you. Yeah, I mean, he says the evil <clears throat> of the pessimist is then not that he chastises gods and men, but that he does not love what he chastises. Mm -hmm. He has not this primary and supernatural loyalty to things, right? So the problem with the, the pessimist, he, he has no love. He has no loyalty. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 he's very self-centered. But then he says, what is the evil of the man commonly called an optimist? Obviously, it is felt that the optimist wishing to defend the honor of this world will defend the indefensible. He is the Jingo of the universe. He will say, my cosmos 
right or wrong. He will be less inclined to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front bench official answer to all attacks, soothing everyone with assurances. He will not wash the world, but whitewash the world. Hmm. All this, which is true of a type of optimist, leads us to the one really interesting point of psychology, which could not be explained without it. So he's basically saying that an optimist also doesn't love. You know, they're giving the right answers all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I almost wonder if there's something here, the difference between someone who, like the person who's um, sarcastic versus the person who flatters all the time. Mm -hmm. They're both kind of two ends, two, two ditches. Uh, the one who is sarcastic all the time Everything is a joke. Everything's ironic. Mm -hmm. Nothing matters. And someone who flatters is treating something like, oh, you matter, but you really don't. Or it's, it's, a, a, it's self-serving in its own way. You're not actually seeking the good of the other person. Because if you were, you would actually seek their improvement. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't just flatter them. Mm. So it's interesting how genuine love, I think, cuts right down the middle of that. Yeah. And again, I, I, keep, I keep coming back to this. The loving without reason is, is, it's counterintuitive, but in order for love to be unconditional, and he says this himself, the man, the man who will improve the place, he's talking here again about the land or Pimlico, is the man who loves it without a reason. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, he may find himself defending that feature against Pimlico itself. So he's kind of talking about like the conservative mindset. If you love something because of something in the past, it's not necessarily because it's good, it's just because it's part of Pimlico. Or if you mm -hmm. love the US and it has this one feature and you're defending that one feature, just because it's part of the US's past, then you could actually prevent progress. Mm. Um, but if you simply love Pimlico, you may lay it to waste and turn it into the new Jerusalem. So he's also like, there's also a way to eradicate the place and just make it into this lofty ideal, which totally you know, flattens the culture. And, and so, so they're both opposite extremes there, but this idea that in order for love to truly be unconditional, it has to be without a reason, because the moment you introduce a reason, you're really loving, not in an unconditional way, but in a conditional way. Like, yeah, it, it, it is, it's kind of radical. It, the more I mean, you think about it. I think about with like, like churches, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you go to a church and you're like, Oh, I love the music here. I love the preaching. And that's the feature of it that you love. And then maybe it changes a little bit or it doesn't up to par or you get tired of it or, or like, and you're like, why can't we go back or, or something like that? And then, or, or you get so used to a certain way that a church is mm -hmm. that if it changes or whatever, and you're like, oh, you know, we want to preserve that or something like that. Yeah. That could be a good impulse, but then you could also wonder like, do you actually love the church or do you love a feature of it? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too is like thinking the consumeristic mindset of like, well, this isn't giving my needs Mm -hmm. This isn't doing what I need anymore. As opposed to being like dogged almost and being like, this is my church. We're going to stay. We're part of this. We love people here. Yeah. And resisting the consumerist mindset, even if a better church comes along, right. just being like, no, this is, there's a sense of belonging here. There's, this is my, these are my people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, not without being cultish, you know, I mean, you always run the danger of that. Sure. People can manipulate that, that sensibility. Yeah. But I do think there is something to having a sense of loyalty to place, mm -hmm. not blind loyalty. Actually, he does make the point where he talks about, um, this is a paraphrase, but like a wife knows her husband's flaws mm -hmm. more than anybody. Right. Um, and because of that, she wants him to grow 
and be better, mm-hmm. right? And he says, love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. So actually the more committed you are yeah. to an organization or to a person or to whatever, the more you see the faults. The faults. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you think about the apostle Paul, he loved the church. He was bound to the church and he saw plenty of her mm-hmm. faults, you know? Yeah. It's actually very lazy to just take shots from the outside, mm. right? But it's like, it's kind of the whole thing, you know, you actually have to be part of it to understand it. it, it probably, I would say this, the people who love the church the most are grieved the most by her flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because they love the church that the flaws grieve them. Mm-hmm. But they're allowed to do that because they also have a commitment. Yeah. To building the church. Mother Teresa said commitment brings clarity, which we often don't see when we sometimes think it's the other way around. Like once you're, once you're committed, you're sort of blinded because you're moved by, you know, passions or whatever. But, but there, I mean, while that is possible, there's a sense in which true commitment, not just like being infatuated with place or not just being swept along, but commitment where you know what it is you're getting into and what it is you're doing. And you can see all the warts and the flaws and everything but you've got a dogged sort of, this is my place. It is almost to the point that it's irrational in the sense that just, just says without a reason, because there are really good reasons to, to leave yeah. or go somewhere better. But you're just like, no, this is, this is where God has placed me, or this is, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick this out. And by my love, I'm going to improve the situation. I'm going to make this thing lovable. Think about your best friendships too. Like you feel like the people who know you are the ones who in a sense, they can kind of, uh, they, they know your flaws and they love you in spite of them. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to say something because they care about you growing. Right. And the person who's just like, oh, you're great. You're, you're awesome. Oh, I love that dude. It's actually, you know, that's a very shallow relationship. I would never say that to you. I know. I know. <laughs> you're, you're, you're always constantly just rebuking <laughs> out of your, your friend, out of our friendship. But that's right. But there is something to that. Um, you know, someone who loves their community is going to know exactly the more involved they're in a community, the more of the cracks they're going to see, mm. right? The more you invest in your family, the more you're going to see the flaws of all the individuals and yourself. That's part of it. Now, he does introduce Christianity as sort of the third way, as mm-hmm. the way to how do you love the world yeah. without being rose-colored glasses, optimistic, or, you know, Debbie Downer pessimistic. And he says, um, well, he kind of primes a little bit where he says that, uh, one, uh, the heart must be fixed on the right thing. The moment we have fixed, we have a fixed heart, we have a free hand, right? So we have to orient ourselves correctly to God and that Mm -hmm. frees us up. And then he says this, um, what we need is not the cold acceptance of the world as a compromise, but some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. We do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other and produce a surly contentment. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. And then he goes on to say, um, can a man hate it enough, the world, to change it and yet love it enough to think it is worth changing? Hmm. And so he's saying, what we need is, we're not just being stoics, being like, this is the way the world is, let's just grit and bear it. Yeah. Um, but he's also saying, not saying, oh, the world is fine. Let's just dig, stick our hands in the sand. Mm-hmm. He's saying, you got to heartily hate and love it. I mean, you've got to see with 
brutal clarity the problems, mm. but love it to where you are willing to do something and you, and you are willing to work for redemption. I don't think he's saying like some kind of social gospel, you change the world. I, I think he's merely saying that as Christians, we should be hopeful and realistic, right? That, that should be our mode of being. Yeah. Because God himself knows all the fallenness of the world, but he incarnates into it, mm -hmm. right? He enters into creation. He achieves redemption. And so we have to adopt that mindset. But I think you can only get that if you rise above yourself, mm -hmm. beyond yourself. You need something that transcends. You need God. You need God to make all that make sense. Um, and so he talks about Christianity in that way. Um, with Christianity, uh, he, he has this interesting line where he says, uh, he sets his heart outside himself. He dies that something may live. That is the act of a martyr. And he con contrasts that with the act of someone who commits suicide. He mm -hmm. says, um, the man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the world. So uh, the man who kills himself is so pessimistic that he destroys the world. The world gets wiped out of existence, at least in his perception. Yeah. But the martyr dies because he loves life. He loves the world. Mm -hmm. and he dies for the betterment of the world. And I think what he's saying is Christianity has that element of like, you see, what does Christ do? He dies for sinners. Mm -hmm. right? he, he, he is not, <clears throat> he knows exactly what we're like, but he's not pessimistic about us in the sense that he acts, he brings about redemption. He yeah. loves us, not because of something in us, but because of his decision to love. His love binds him hmm. in that way. Yeah, I think, so I think Chesterton is giving a defense of, of hope because the world has potential. And this idea of seeing, seeing the good and the bad implies that there is a good and a bad actually in the world. But the good is something that we should affirm. And it's, it's a good that the pessimist can't see and so can't affirm it. And the optimist can't see the bad. And so the martyr can't be a pessimist or an optimist. They right. can't, it's like the pessimist would never give his life for, right. If pessimist wouldn't give their life, but a martyr wouldn't right. have and a reason to. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think Christianity makes sense of martyrdom. Like martyrdom is only possible and worthy of pursuit as an ideal if the world has good and there's hope um, for that good to be affirmed and actualized. It's like, it makes me think of that quote from the Lord of the Rings where sort of at the end when everything looks super bleak and Sam says, there's a little bit of good left in the world and it's worth fighting for. And so that's a recognition, not the rose colored glasses. He's actually, the world kind of sucks right now, but there's something good and there's some hope. And so the affirmation of the good, the um, cultivation of hope, it's, it's a Christian virtue. And I think here Chesterton is explicitly relying on his Christian heritage, but martyrdom is truly a Christian ideal because it affirms the goodness in the world and the potential that the world has. He says, uh, I had found this hole in the world, the fact that one must somehow find a way of loving the world without trusting it. Somehow one must love the world without being worldly. I found this projecting feature of Christian theology like a sort of hard spike, the dogmatic insistence that God was personal and had made a world separate from himself. And so that, that's kind of, I, I guess God is the transcendent yeah. thing where it's mm -hmm. like, well, God loves the world mm -hmm. in, in, in one sense, right? 
and we should have to share that same love. But we have to rise above the world in order to have the resources to do that. Right. Right. That we love because God loves. Mm. We don't love because of the intrinsic beauty of the things that we necessarily see. Yeah. Although creation bears beauty and, and all that stuff. Um, but he, he talks about how all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason. That it had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. The Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. I had tried to be happy by telling myself that man is an animal like any other which sought its meat uh, from God. But now I was really happy, for I had learned that man is a monstrosity. I had been right in feeling all the things as odd, for I myself was at once worse and better than all things. I love that, worse and better. Like the Christian vision gives a higher vision of humanity, mm -hmm. but also a lower vision of the humanity of our sin. Yeah. And he's basically saying that um, he assumed, like, we know we don't fit into this world. We know this isn't as it should be. Yeah. And Christianity finally released them to be like, there's a way to go we don't fit in without hating the world. Mm. To be, to, to be, to love the world without trusting in it. I think that's a great way to put it. I think that's the, you know, when Jesus is saying, you know, be in the uh, world, in the world not of yeah. it. Um, and we're not trying to be, we're not trying to escape this world mm -hmm. where this world isn't bad. It's fallen. Um, and it, maybe it, it ties back in. Maybe the, 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 the optimist reads Genesis one and two and ignores Genesis three. Mm -hmm. And the pessimist only reads Genesis three and ignores Genesis one and two. Yeah. The vision and the glory of man and mm -hmm. the goodness of creation and all those types of things. And I think he's saying a, a proper understanding of Christianity will take both Genesis one, two and three mm -hmm. into account and see that, there's redemption. There's a there's a way in between pessimism and optimism. And if your if your love for creation or indeed for anything at all is going to be complete, it has to be unconditional. I think Chesterton's saying that this is the ideal, that for love to be its truest form, it cannot be conditioned by the thing that is being loved. And so creation is if if God in the same way that God has. I don't think he's calling us to unconditional love of creation. That sounds weird, but I do think he's trying to give us this stronger point about God's transcendent love is unconditional. And it's not because we are the lovely thing, but God's love makes us, um, makes the unlovable thing lovable. And that's, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the principle he's relying on. Well, he calls this love irrational optimism. It is. Yeah. Cause he says rational optimism leads to stagnation. Mm -hmm. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Yeah. Um, and he says, let me explain by using once more the parallel of patriotism. The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without a reason. Right. And he says the worst jingoes do not love England, but a theory of England. What is mm -hmm. a jingo? Is that like a, I don't know. Sounds, sounds yeah, I hope it's not some kind of like terrible non PC. Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> you heard so, it here, folks, yeah, Brian, here. <laughs> with <Yeah>. this jingo. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's like it's like the guy who's living in squalor or he's like inherited <laughs> this house from his ancestors. Yeah, and it's falling apart. It's terrible. And you're like, you could really do with like some new windows. Like, why don't you like new paint job? Like, he's like, no, it's fine. I love it the way it is. It's like, well, there's a kind of like you, you, don't, really, you don't really love it. That optimism is not you're not really loving the 
the property that's been handed down to you. And I think that's what he's trying to point out. Well, but no, but he says that you should have an irrational optimism. Irrational. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah, saying yeah. The, yeah, the, the rational optimism right. is a person who's just like, yeah, right. it's great. Yeah. Like it's fine as it is. Yeah. Yeah. But the irrational optimism saying like, no, they, they seek reform. And I think he doesn't mean literally it's illogical. Right. But he's saying that it's not based upon a reason, I guess right. is what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to love this place simply because I love this place. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make me seek its best, which is going to make me seek yeah. Reform. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and it's the idea, you know, the theory of England, it's like, yeah, it's like you can love an idea. Idealism kills churches, right? Because mm. you're like, I want this to be the perfect, this community, the New Testament community, whatever. And the more you idealize the church, the more you're not going to be able to love the actual church in front of you. But the more you act, you love the actual church in front of you, uh, the more I think you will seek to actually be active mm -hmm. and do good. It's very easy to sit in the cheap seats and be like, this is terrible, you know, but you have no commitment. You have no skin in the game. Yeah. I think having skin in the game is really important. Mm -hmm. If you're going to criticize something, you should have skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and and I think, yeah, that's an important thing to, to look at. And yeah, but the Christian parallel is really fascinating. I think he does a good job of pulling that out and showing just you can't understand the gospel without understanding a God who is not optimistic about human ability, yeah, but not pessimistic that he leaves us in our squalor. And squalor. Uh, we should should adopt that similar perspective. This was an interesting chapter. Yeah, it's it was abstract. It was. And, and it takes a little getting used to. Yeah, the 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 patriotism metaphors, the principle of the unconditionality, the pessimism, optimism, it all kind of works together. But you have to. It's it's like it's like a jigsaw puzzle. As you're reading it, you're like trying to hold all this stuff and see how it fits together, and it, it kind of works. I mean, he's he's brilliant. Yeah. So when we don't understand it, the problem's probably with us. We apologize to Pimlico, 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 and Detroit. Our many fans. Our many fans. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys for listening. Make sure you pick up this book and read it for yourself. You can follow along with us, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. That'll preach. Podcast is our handle and subscribe, share this with some friends if you think they'd be benefiting from it and help get the word out. We much appreciate that. And we will see you guys next week. <laughs>